podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. 1980s now. Oh boy. Merry Christmas. I can't say Merry Christmas without it sounding like I have a full on uh, cold here. Uh, It's allergies. Allergies are bad for me this time of year. But Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates Christmas and happy holidays to other folks who celebrate something else, another religious uh, event or holiday observation, something. Uh, My name's Will, host of 1980s. Now each week we bring you uh, an examination of 1980s pop culture and talk about its continued influence today. This week we don't have a new episode for you. We'll be back next week with one, but I didn't want to let a week go by without providing you with something, including uh, this, uh, what I'm going to play for you in just a moment, which is from a prior episode, but it's really fantastic, right? Oh boy, that sounded, sounds, it sounded less convincing than I, than I thought it would. But no, seriously, in recent, a recent news story, 1980s news item that we discussed, Howard Scott Warshaw, the legendary video game designer, his name was invoked because Atari released a new product called Atari XP, where they misattributed, I think that's right, misattributed, I think that's the right word, uh, two video games that they're releasing to Howard, saying that he had designed them, but he didn't. And he came out and clarified that, no, he had nothing to do with it. But this reminded me of our conversation last year with Howard when he was uh, kind enough to be part of our Christmas Carol episode where we spoke with three, quote unquote, you know, Christmas ghosts or video game ghosts. I don't remember what the conceit of it was, but check it out for the full episode from last year if you want. But I wanted you at least to hear the interview with Howard Scott Warshaw because he tells the interesting and fascinating stories about his working on Yars Revenge, Indiana Jones, and the infamous E.T., the extraterrestrial video game, which was... Let's say mixed reviews, received mixed reviews. We loved it. We also talked about it recently on the show, how we loved it and how Ray's rated it. In any case, enjoy our, this clip or this, no, the full interview. Yeah, it's the full interview from our, uh, from last Christmas with Howard Scott Warshaw. What is that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Oh this my is God, a, he actually said this was going to happen. We're being visited. Howard, Howard Scott Warshaw. Warshaw. What in the heck are you doing here? Hello, Will. How are you doing? Uh, Good. I sort of caught the vibe that something was going on, and I thought, this is a place I'd like to contribute. So well, I figured I'd materialize and show up. This is perfect timing, because we've been sort of lamenting, not retro games, the new games that are coming out. And you know, longing for the Christmases of bygone eras where we looked forward to getting that very distinctive uh, wrapped or shaped rectangular box under our Christmas tree. Yeah, new stuff is new, stuff is new, but it's new in old ways, isn't it? It's like Cyberpunk 2077 is having a big recall now, pulling it back. <laughs> so yes. it's, you know, everything old is new mm. again. They're still releasing games that have problems on release. And if anybody is familiar with a game that has a problem on release, it is <laughs> yes. us. Yes. And you know what I was just realizing as we're sort of recollecting about Christmases of the past, that 1982 had to been my best Christmas haul of all time, because not only did I get uh, Yars Revenge that year, I also got Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. This is all for my 2600. We were a 2600 family. My, my dad and mom bought that, and we never saw another console in our house. And, of course, I got the thing you're alluding to, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, which actually came out Christmas of that year. Mm-hmm. They were all great games, but how disappointed I was, Howard, to see in 1983 that a game I loved, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, w- would bring down an entire industry, one that brought me so much joy as a mm-hmm. child. 
So I, I guess my first question is, how dare you, sir? How dare I? How could I not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, after all, what, what do we do when we create media? And I always saw video games as producing media. Mm. Now, you're an experienced media producer. Thank you. Obviously, this is media right here, right? So Some would say. The way I look at media is that the goal of media is threefold, right? I want to, uh, a good piece of media, in my opinion, uh, it informs, it entertains, and it creates and generates social discourse. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that some of the games that I did back then, we're still talking about today, yep. uh, makes me feel like they were very successful media products. Yep. You know, sometimes people think I'm really sensitive about the ET issue. Oh, you yes. make the worst game of all time, you know? Mm. And it's like, I'm not particularly sensitive about it. On some levels, I'm kind of proud of it. Mm. You know, and the truth <laughs> is, I don't really believe ET is the worst game of all time. And a lot of people join me in that thought, but. I prefer when people do call it the worst game of all time because Yars Revenge, you know, my first game is frequently cited as one of the best games of all time. So as long as E.T. is the worst, I've got the greatest range of any designer in history. And I'm very happy about that. And in short order, within just months of each other. So you just published a new book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Yes, thank you. (laughs) You know, in there you talk about how at a young age you were very much involved in, in playing games, even as a means, I think you say, to to keep away boredom, because boredom would be a time for introspection. And who wants to do that? But, but, but between that and ultimately finding a role in Atari uh, in, in 1981, what experience have you had with video games at all prior to that? Almost none. I mean, I had played some Pong-esque variants, you know, as most people had at some point. I thought video games were interesting. I thought they were kind of cool. And I was also certain I would have nothing to do with them, which was kind of interesting. My, I sort of happened to Atari as opposed to sought it out. Yep. How I got to Atari is kind of an amusing thing. I mean, the first time I ever saw a, a video game per se was in a Blimpy's restaurant, one of these sub shops in oh, yeah. New Orleans. And there was this cabinet. There was a Space Invaders there. And I just took a look at it for a moment. I didn't play it. I just sort of looked at it for a bit and I thought, man, this is going to be really big. And then I ordered a, you know, a roast beef sub. And, <laughs> and I was working at Hewlett Packard as a multi-terminal system engineer, as computer engineer, formally trained. But I was so unhappy and had so lost the joy and, and just the, the passion that I had for computers that I had discovered in college doing some real-time control system programming like you do in video games. And that was totally lost at Hewlett Packard. And I was acting out because I am... You know, you wouldn't know what to talk to me, but I'm kind of a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> and uh, more so than Hewlett Packard ordinarily tolerates. And so people would go home and tell Howard stories. And, you know, one of my uh, co-workers came up to me one day and said, you know, I was telling my wife a Howard story the other day. <laughs> she says stuff like that goes on all the time where she works. I said, oh, where's that? Oh. And he said, oh, it's Atari. I thought, oh. That sounds good because I need a change. I need to go somewhere else. I called Atari, wangled my way in to get some interviews, found out they do real-time control programming. I was one of the few people who actually had background and training in it at that time. And I thought we were all set on a collision course, and then they rejected me. They did not want to hire me, which was turned out to be a very funny story in retrospect because they didn't think I would fit in at Atari. <laughs> Turns out 
I did. <laughs> so we've talked to other folks before and it's still fascinating to me when we come across yet another person in a different industry that in the 1980s broke ground, you know, uh, was essentially um, creating a role that hadn't existed before or, you know, having to learn on the job, I suppose. It was it the same for you at Atari? Because we had consoles in the 70s, of course, but they weren't what they were about to become. They weren't. The, the 2600 was interesting because it was the first console that really had the capacity for interchangeable cartridges. Other consoles had done it, but they weren't developing it to the extent that the 2600 was pursuing it and Atari was. So it became the first console that really took the industry by storm. And it was a very, very primitive hardware. And it took people who, what a lot of people say is you had to be a, con in order to be a, a video game maker back then, you had to be a weird combination of someone who's very anal and very goofy, <laughs> right? You had to be anal enough to like and enjoy doing this nitpicky, really technically challenging, intricate programming task. Right. And then you also had to be, you know, wacky and goofy enough to come up with fun ideas and strange things to do with the hardware. So groundbreaking is a great term for it, it really is, because uh, I like breaking new ground. I like doing things in new ways. And Atari gave me the chance to do that and really value that aspect of it. And Yars Revenge was a game that did all kinds of things no one had done before. Yars Revenge set a whole bunch of standards in the industry that no one had ever seen before, including pause mode. Yars Revenge was actually the yes. first game with a pause mode, mm -hmm. right? So next time you pause your game, remember to say, thank you, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark did some very unusual things, and that was groundbreaking. But uh, on, uh, I think it was April 26th, Night to 2014, ET became groundbreaking in a way I had never anticipated <laughs> before, and that it actually came up out of the ground. But right. I can say that every one of my games was groundbreaking in some interesting way. <laughs> of course, you're you're alluding to the uh, dig site in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where they ultimately did unearth some ET cartridges, long rumored to have been gestating there. And indeed, we validated and invalidated the uh, urban myth at the same time. Yeah. I hope most of your listeners are familiar with the story. But yep. And after that, I decided I need to write a book about this because yep. I think I had some real impact on Atari and the course of things and changing how video games went back then. But Atari had tremendous impact on me, reverberated throughout my life for years. And it's an interesting story. I think it's an yep. interesting story. And I finally got the book together. Yeah. And that's why uh, that's what you talked about before. Once Upon Atari is just I just like that title. Yeah. And so because it is like a fairy tale, except it's a real life adventure. Yeah. And it's, what's great about it. And now and maybe and maybe I'm curious, you know, obviously your new role uh, in the world is as a therapist and one specializing in the challenges, it seems, that might plague uh, folks in Silicon Valley, including their loved ones, someone married to someone who's maybe a. Uh, facing the certain obstacles that come along with that industry. But it's interesting to me that in reading the book, which is, which is fascinating because you really get a sense of what it was like to be there. It seems like at that time, how it may have been a training ground for you to become a therapist, because a lot of the folks you talk about in the book have are different, maybe neuroses. And you even create this new category. I love this theory that even a corporation might have its own <laughs> uh, personality disorder. Was this prepping you for what you- It's true. Atari was an amazing proving ground for someone who would be a therapist because it was an incredibly stressful environment. Yep. It was a wild and crazy environment. There were 
uh, outrageous people, very eccentric, bordering on the strictly neurotic, and some not just bordering on it, but way crossing over with papers. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, there was some nutty people there. There were people who were carted away. You know, yeah. there were actually nervous breakdown. <laughs> so it was a high-pressure, high-tension environment with a lot of extreme and exotic personalities. It was really an interesting place to be at the time. What's interesting, though, is that in some ways, I feel like I've come full circle <laughs> in a way, because... Back then at Atari, what I was doing was I was entertaining nerds. And the way I look at it is now I actually work with them to make their lives better. Mm. So it's like after a long journey around of going through so many careers right. until I finally settled on becoming a psychotherapist. And the amazing thing about psychotherapy yep. is that it's the first job I have had since working at Atari that gives me the special combo that I need to be satisfied in a professional life. And that is something that really stretches me both technically and artistically. Atari really did that for me in a beautiful way. And psychotherapy does that too. It's the first thing I found in 30 years that gave me the satisfaction I found at Atari. You know, talking about uh, Atari, the ultimate demise of Atari and, and the you know, and you do a good way of, I think it was a very good way you describe sort of uh, what may really have been causes and maybe really was going on. You know, we call it a crash here in the U.S., but in, in Japan, video games are still thriving. And obviously they find a way to sort of crack their way into America based on what they saw happening, uh, you know, to Atari and the other consoles. So it was a crash of sorts. But um, I guess related to that, I mean, you know, to tell these stories of the three Chrismai which is a plural of Christmas, everybody knows. <laughs> the third story, you know, tells us, and folks who read the book and read these stories is they're really, they're hilarious, they're enlightening, and learn a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff about Atari and the development of these video games and the characters involved. But you tell, in this third story, you talk about how in, uh, it's around the fall of 1982, so you've got some defectors from Atari. One group, uh, Dave, Dave Crane and a bunch of folks create uh, Activision, uh, and you've got uh, Rob Fallup that does uh, a magic with a couple of other guys, Bob Smith and someone I'm forgetting. Um, and Dennis Coble, yeah. All right. So it seems like Atari thinks they're going to, the way you describe it, get revenge on Imagic by releasing Atari's financials. Uh, but when Atari finally releases its financials, their financials are terrible. And so this causes, you know, folks at stock market to, you know, disregard video game companies as a as having any future and the planned IPO for Imagic is, you know, it dissipates. Was that, was Atari, I thought, was Atari trying to show them, show Rob up by saying, look how awesome our company is, how much money we made only to realize, oh no, this, we've had a bad thing happen. Or did they know they were going to show terrible financials and they were willing to tank the market to ruin the futures of these third-party developers? I think it's the latter. Wow. I mean, I, Truly believe, because they knew what the numbers were, right? So the numbers yeah. weren't a surprise to the Atari execs. The yeah. thing that was a question was, when would they release it? There's a time when you release your numbers, and usually when a company has some bad numbers coming, yeah. they do their best to hide it as long as they can. Sure. But there were other motivations. There was, you know, there was some vindictive people you know, hanging out at that company at times. And so what happened was they decided to release their bad numbers early, but they happened, you know, maybe it was just a coincidence, but it turns out it was like 48 hours before Imagic was set to IPO. And when Atari's numbers came out, all the financial uh, people backing that IPO pulled out because it was mm. like, 
oh my God, we thought we were going to ride this wave and now it's a crash. And so it totally blew that and really destroyed the, 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 the dreams wow. of a lot of people, yeah. people who were my friends, people yeah. I really cared about. It was, it was a sad day. Hmm. A lot of people see it as a sad day in the industry, but for me on a personal level, it was very sad and it was hard to be a part of something that was going on like that for me. But I'm really happy to say that the friendships among developers, whether they stayed at Atari or left Atari, those friendships were solid and remained and remain to this day, frankly. Right. I'm still friendly with Bob Smith and Rob Fulop and Rob Zdibble and Todd Fry. A lot of the people you see in the book, I still deal with on a regular basis and very much care about these people. We, we were in the trenches together at the beginning and really forged some uh, relationships and friendships that have literally lasted a lifetime. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So there you go, folks. That's one possible explanation that has nothing to do with E.T. I think E.T. is your best game. Because wow. I've played many, many hours of it. and Thank you. Yeah, yeah, compared to the other ones, I think that's your best game. Well, I hope you're not looking for an argument from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. It leads me to a question, though, because, you know, one of the, you know, the biggest criticism of the pits. And having read your book, and again, folks should check out Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry by Howard Scott Washoe. There was a lot of playtesting for some of your games, like Yar's Revenge, you know. We know the turnaround time for E.T. was short. How did we How did we wind up there, I guess, with this? I think the frustration was getting out of the pits. That was the challenging part. Uh, that yeah. was the pits. Yeah. <laughs> getting out of the pits was definitely the pits. Yes. And it's, it's, a, it's one of the great ironies of E.T. that a game that was all about pits wound up in a pit in Alamogordo, <laughs> New Mexico, right? So, that didn't even you know, yeah. You know, yeah, but it's, you know, to me, I looked at it as gameplay. The idea yeah. was you needed... Where's the gameplay in E.T.? Part of it was supposed to be when you get out of the pit, you have to know how to manipulate the character mm. with the graphics around in a way and then to exit yeah. the pit in a way that you don't fall back in. I saw that as gameplay. Yeah. Unfortunately, most players saw that as crap. <laughs> Irritation. And so I was off on that one. I missed. Yeah. I apologize. You know, I'd like to take a moment to say to all the people who really had a trouble and frustration with that, with E.T., and you really were disgusted by it, and you're really angered by it, I just want to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow, this is like an exclusive. My bad. Like you know, and <laughs> my, our, my buddy Ray here, he, he's a master of getting out of the pits. We were playing it on a show, I don't know, a few months ago, and he was showing me tricks for getting out of the pits, no problem. He and his brother mm -hmm. developed back tricks. in the 80s, yeah. You know, and this, yeah. this is no slight against... Todd Fry, I've seen him speak about the challenges of bringing the Pac-Man port to the 2600, but I was surprised you said, you know, when, when Spielberg says to you, can't you, do, why don't you just make something like Pac-Man, which I thought maybe he wanted E.T. eating Reese's Pieces, maybe was the idea. Um, but, and you said you couldn't make a Pac-Man in five weeks, but, you know, conceptually, at least as a, you know, as an end user, eating dots and being chased by ghosts seems like an easier thing to create than what you did, which was a sort of multi-layered adventure. It does. And I think you, you make a really good point there because what a game, when you look at a game on the screen, you think, well, these mechanics aren't that involved and look at all the stuff you have to go through and this other thing, that must be a more involved thing to do. But there's an illusion there because things that look simple to play aren't necessarily simple to program. Yep. And so what it takes to program and implement something is not the same as what is easy to play. 
right? So it's true that it, it seemed, well, big deal. You put a little ET character, you lay a bunch of dots on the screen, you have them run around and do it. <laughs> There's nothing to it. Whereas, you know, the ET, when you got spaceships and you're running yeah. around in pits, and now you got to find, you got to, what, what zone am I in? Holy cow. Uh, but that was actually easier to program. So it's, that's the, uh, the, the black box effect, right? Mm -hmm. It's the technical illusion, you know, right. which I go into in the book. Yep. Uh, I think that's a part of what I call a nerd world country, <laughs> where I try to really explain some of the technology in a way that's uh, easy to understand. I hope I succeeded with that. Yes. You, yes, you did. You know, you, when you're talking about the ET story in the book, you mentioned that you had met. So you, and again, folks should read the story. If you haven't heard it, it's a real, it's an iconic story at this point, but how Howard is, you know, a summon to a tarmac to fly on a Learjet to meet Steven Spielberg of all people, you know, sort of like the biggest director of all time. But, and you had, you mentioned you had already met with him several times before that. Was that while you were working on Raiders? Exactly. Yeah. That was during the Raiders of the Lost Ark project. Were you running gameplay by him and as development went on? Uh, the truth is Steven Spielberg is a really sophisticated creative person. And what he tends to do is just choose people who mm -hmm. really, uh, he believes know what they're doing and let them work. So he would, I mean, I, I did an interview. I had an interview with him to get the chance to do Raiders. Wow. And uh, during that interview, I explained to him my theory of how he himself is actually an alien. Because I did have this whole theory about how Steven Spielberg was an alien. I asked if he wanted to hear it. I laid it out for him. I actually got quote of the month in Games Magazine in 82 for calling Steven Spielberg an alien. But I think that got me the job. That enabled me to go ahead and do Raiders. And during the course of Raiders development, he would occasionally come up and I would demo the game for him and show him what I had. And we would have lunch and we would chat a little bit. But that was just a few times. And E.T. was the same thing, except there was no lunches. You know, he, he was just like presented the design. He said, okay, I went and did it. And then he came up and at the end of the project and approved it. Yeah. So switching video games for a moment, we know that one of the famous Easter eggs of yours is uh, hiding the name of then CEO of Atari, Ray Kazar, in plain sight in uh, Yars Revenge. Uh, Ray, my Ray. Did you know that uh, Yars or Yar was Ray backwards? Oh, I know that. Yeah, I, I know Howard likes his Easter eggs in the games, too. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> I am a big fan of the Easter eggs. So uh, I know in the book you talk about how, you know, at first you have no dealings with Ray Kazar, but, um, or little, and then you, there you go uh, hiding his name in, in uh, your first breakthrough video game. Um, what was your relationship uh, with, with him? Was it uh, jovial? Was it contentious? You know, the first time I ever actually talked to Ray was after I had pulled, there's a whole story in the book about how I came up with the name of Yar's Revenge and how it was a way of playing off of Ray Kazar and using that to manipulate marketing into using my selection. So I tried to outmarket marketing by taking advantage of the fact that no one would check with Ray Kazar when I used his name without permission yep. to, to be a part of the presentation. But Ray and I had a few dealings with each other. Uh, frankly, you know, I mean, I used to poke fun at Ray here and there at times, but I liked Ray. By and large, I liked Ray. But I never had to deal with Ray in a way like the people from Activision or the people from Imagine. The sure. people who went to Ray and said, look, I want this. You need to give us this. Uh, I didn't have to do that with Ray. When I went to Ray and said, hey, I'd like this, it was because he was coming to me saying, here's what we need you to do, and it's a ridiculous thing to ask. He didn't know it was a ridiculous thing to ask, but he knew he needed it. And 
And I was someone that, uh, I don't know, I guess he respected to some degree or he certainly thought capable. Because of you, you know, you talked about Yars being a lot of firsts, but, and uh, maybe you're just being humble, but, uh, you know, Yars not only did it have the first pause, the first backstory, um, but also the first uh, game that actually gave the programmer credit. Uh, and it sort of was sort of a roundabout way because you were credited first with creating the the, the, the comic book or the story behind the. Had you not created the comic book that went with the game, it seems like maybe maybe uh, it would have taken a little longer to get that. But it seemed like probably a lot of what you did wound up for whatever the short time Atari s- survived gave more power to the uh, programmers. Um, yeah, and I was not against that. Yeah. I like the idea of <laughs> having more representation and influence for sure. I just, I have a different way of doing things. I'm just that person. I'm the person who, you know, you tell me, you know, is the glass half full or half empty? I'll tell you the glass is too large. It's just <laughs> going to be a different way of seeing things. And sometimes that puts people in the position of not knowing exactly what to do with me. Yeah, <laughs> because they know they're getting something they like from me, but they don't know what to do with it. And they don't like the fact that I'm sitting there looking and going, well, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> Which I like to do. So uh, what happened was I created the story. Right. I wrote a whole story, a backstory for it, it turned out to be the first backstory yep. for a video game that anybody had ever done. I just did it to push the title that I was trying to promote and they decided to go with a comic book for it. And I thought that's great. And then they thought, well, the comic book, cause they have produced uh, publications before they, cause they Atari would never give programmers credit. That was a major sore point. Yep. Atari wanted a game from Atari to be from Atari, not from any person. Activision and Magic had caught on the idea that if you have people who make games that people like, you can really market the person. You can say, here's another game from so-and-so. Atari just wanted it to be Atari. They didn't want the name of programmers out. They also didn't want people to know who to poach. Mm. <laughs> they were looking oh. for, for, for uh, to, to, to hit up Atari's stable. But they had to do credits for the comic book. And so I saw the prototypes for it, and I noticed there's credits. And because they were doing it for the game, they gave a game programmer credit. So I got a game programmer credit. And, uh, and that was the first time, and I think one of the only times, that any Atari game programmer ever got credit. Mm. And that was because people had been fired for trying to get credit on games before. Mm. And as a lot of people know, I'm sure that there were Easter eggs. This is really the birth of Easter eggs, right? right? Because Easter eggs originally are not just a, a little bone mo for players to find, <laughs> you know, and right. a fun thing to look for. The purpose of Easter eggs originally was to be able to prove you are the author of a game. And the original Easter eggs were all about either initials or the name of the programmer appearing after some play sequence because Atari wouldn't acknowledge or uh, allow people to assert their authorship. Yeah. And, and so it, kind of busted that open. Yeah. Well, famously, it was Warren Robinette is responsible for what we, and Ernest Klein yes, documented yeah. in Ready Player One as the first Easter egg. And so it is about credit. That's, and of course you had some that included your initials uh, and some other callbacks to your uh, games. Right. But that was another first that I did because yeah. um, in Yars Revenge, the Easter, I had a secret Easter egg in Yars Revenge. And then I went to marketing and said, hey, you know, these Easter eggs, I think, increase the playability. 
of games. It's not just, you know, a hidden thing, you know, because they get pissed off because they find out in retrospect, someone find an Easter egg right to Atari and go, oh, look, you know, I found this in. And they're like, ah, what did you do? Why are you people doing this? But they didn't have anyone who could check the work, you know, to find it. Right. But uh, I said to them, look, people like this. They like looking for it. This is a positive. Why don't we market it? Why don't we tell people it's there instead of trying to get angry and create, you know, internal turmoil? You know, Atari usually found time for both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember, uh, finding out about them from mostly word of mouth. I think some were published in Atari age, maybe that, you know, were, I think that's how we maybe learned about the one in adventure. I'm, I'm not sure, but then it spread through the elementary school. You know, you've got to do this and that and you can figure this because some of them, I don't know how folks, even the most intrepid of game players would find, uh, like the one in yours with your initials, that's crazy to do that, all that stuff there. But It is crazy. Some of them, it's, it is unbelievable to me that people found them. Yeah. Because initially we put them in so that they wouldn't be found. That was, it was like a secret thing. You didn't want anyone to find it. Yeah. And people still find it because you put a game out and you've got hundreds of thousands to millions of people playing uh, 10, 20, 40 hours each. That's an incredible amount of time on a game. When you do, when you put that much time, it's, it's you know, the thousand monkeys on a typewriter producing the works <laughs> of Shakespeare, right? I mean, eventually everything that they can do, they're going to do. And, and, and they did. It was amazing. So thinking about video games today, are you still curious about games? Are you still involved? Do you still have folks beckoning you to come back and create the next Yars Revenge 2? I mean, More revenge. Revengier. Something even revengier. I yeah. love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we're not vindictive enough these yeah, days. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, maybe you play against type in the Yars people in the, I never know how to say it, Quaddle? The Cotiles, yeah. The Cotile. Maybe they make up in the next game. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I do get a lot of requests to, to do an updated version of uh, E.T., which I oh. think is huh. superfluous, as they say, or superfluous. Yeah. Sometimes I get the emphasis on the wrong syllable, and I hate it when that happens. <laughs> but... Uh, I don't really want to update ET and ET has been updated. People have done that, but mm. I do think about coming back. I'm not currently in games yep. development. I'm totally devoted to uh, being a psychotherapist now and writing. I enjoy writing, but there is one game. There was a game, a Yars Revenge sequel that I had planned mm. back at Atari. And then I was going to do it, but then I did Raiders and then I was going to do it. And then I did ET and then I was going to do it. And then I blew that off and did another game that turned out to be Saboteur. Mm. Right. And I ended up never really getting to it. It's a gameplay that's a fun, fresh gameplay, I believe. I think it's a very dynamic, it's a Yars-style Twitch kind of gameplay. I think it would be a lot of fun. I've never seen it done in all these years. So I'm still thinking, uh, I'm going to find a homebrew, someone who can really do some 2600 code, mm. get together with them sometime in the not-too-distant future, and I'd still like to produce this game. I think it would be a fun game. Although it can't be a Yars sequel, so maybe it'll be like HSW's Revenge. Yeah, spell someone else's name backwards. Let's see, what's Howard backwards? Drawa. Drawa, yeah, that was never a good one. (laughs) So what do you think about contemporary video games? Um, Are they missing the mark or the spark of what was so essential, you know, of uh, the games, the vintage games of the 80s? Well, you know, games have come full circle, too. And what I mean by that is, you know, games, when, when I was doing games, it was just, you know, a few simple screens. And that's what you do for a game. And they grew and they grew. And they grew way beyond the capacity for an individual to produce. And console games got bigger and bigger and better and more engaging and more intriguing. 
And so on one level, they got way out of the zone of what an individual can creatively do. And so, and that's a shame because, you know, like a, a, a speedboat is cool, but, you know, a cruise ship, you can have a lot of fun on a cruise ship, right? A cruise ship can have a whole bunch of people having a really good time and do some really cool stuff. But the one thing you can't do on a cruise ship is change direction quickly. <laughs> right. And a speedboat you can, but a speedboat can't carry that kind of supply and that many people. So working at Atari is more like being the speedboat person. And now console mm. development has grown into this cruise ship that you really can't influence and shift the direction. So innovation, I think, is lost. Mm. And But what's happened now is that with the single screener games coming back and handhelds, and there's a lot of opportunities with apps and things like that now for people, once again, one or two people can sit down again and make a game. That's possible again. And that's when anybody's come full circle. It went way out of bounds in terms of ability for a creative individual to just assert themselves and offer something. And now that possibility is back. And that's exciting. That's really exciting to me because I like the idea that something fresh and creative has a chance to get out. Because when you get a big monolithic industry like the console business has become, you get narrow casting, right? You get a certain, a few styles of games and they're good games and they're well done, but you don't see like, holy cow, I've never seen something like that in gaming before. Part of it's also because people have been gaming for a generation or two now. So a lot of things have been, it's harder to innovate later than it is to innovate early Mm -hmm. in any endeavor, Right. right? But uh, I think that's, there's a huge aspect now where you can have both the big monolithic thing, which is fun, and, but still have like wacky, wild left field ideas being asserted and offered in handhelds and through apps and Apple stores and things like that. It's, it's, it's much broader now, and now you have both ends of the creative scale there. Also, another thing that's interesting is when I was doing games, a game would be 4K or 8K, and I mean that's the whole game, right. 4,000 bytes. Yep. Now games are more than 8 or 20 gig, yep. right? So games are literally a million times <laughs> bigger than they were when I was doing them. I mean, absolutely. So the question is, are they a million times better? They're way better. <laughs> but I wonder if they're a million times better. I don't know the answer to that question. We can answer that on our show here. No. And part of the reason is, you know, I think about, uh, was it Nolan Bushnell who said uh, about easy to, was it easy to, I'm going to screw up the quote. Easy to learn, tough to master. The greatest thing about those games where you plugged it in, you turned it on. Maybe you didn't even read the manual, but you were able to just jump in and, you know, and go. Now I watched my daughter play a game the other day. I kept checking in to see if she got to the game. Now I'm still doing the tutorial. Yeah, it's learning curve to playing a game. That was one of the complaints I would receive at times because I did games that were tough to learn, tough to master sometimes. <laughs> you needed to have a little bit of manual session to get in because it wasn't quite as intuitive. Because, you know, the easy to learn, tough to master, that is, you know, that is Nolan Bushnell's fundamental law of video games. It's true. But that was invented for coin ops. Mm. Right. A coin op has to be easy to learn and tough to master because you want someone to put in the first quarter. So it's got to be easy to learn, but you want them to keep putting in quarters. So Mm. it has to be tough to master. But a a home game, home games, people put all their quarters down once and they never put another one in. So they're already bought in. I always felt if I can ask a little more of the user in startup, I can deliver a deeper game. Mm. 
Right. And so mm. I did that trade off. And the thing is, some people get frustrated because they can't just pick up the game and play it. Yours, you can for the most part. Some of my action games, you can. My pseudo adventure games, it's not as easy. Sure. But my feeling is once you, once the player's already invested, they're willing to put in a little extra effort to maybe get value from the game they just bought. Mm -hmm. And in that trade-off, I think comes a, a level of depth that I tried to bring to games because I wanted my games to be a richer play experience. That was just something that was important to me. And they were. And uh, as a result, they brought us many, many hours of joy as uh, children and challenged us in a way that we hadn't been challenged before. You know, in thinking back on them, is there a place for those games in the past, in, in our lives today? And uh, is there a world in the future where uh, games may play a role in our lives again? Well, I think games speak to a part of us that's very important. And that is the desire to find a space where I can feel free to be to have fun, be creative and explore. And I think games then and games now have always done it. They do it in different ways. And as games, you know, we started with like a, one joystick with one button. Now we have very involved controllers and we're getting to VR and AR. Augmented reality, I think is a huge thing. Video games are not just entertainment. Video games have generated uh, technologies that change our lives in every way, in so many places. Uh, they change other endeavors. Uh, they, they are for training people. The things that have come from the video game industry have changed movies. They've changed teaching. They've changed the way product development happens. They've changed technological innovation. Uh, video games have opened many doors and many things, and they will continue to do so. Because the thing that drives a lot of technology is passion hmm. and excitement and few things inspire that in developers like entertaining people, like the possibility of putting something out and I can say I made a lot of people happy. And when you think about that's the source of what's bringing a lot of modern technological innovation in place, I think there's a lot of room to be optimistic because passion is something we're always going to have. And when that's where passion takes us, I feel pretty good about it. I love all the games that Howard designed, you know, and you think about it. I don't know if he truly appreciates the impact he's had on so many of our lives with these games that, you know, uh, he created as a young man and we enjoyed in our, our youths. Uh, but, um, hey, don't forget to please like, rate, review, subscribe to the show. Send us an email, make a comment on a post, let us know that we're on the right track or send us a scathing review saying that we're on the wrong track. We read all these things and many of them we share on the air, but it's, a, it's a, certainly an easy way to support the show. There's plenty of other ways that are free and low cost to support 1980s Now. Go to 1980snow.com to find out more about that. Uh, otherwise, hey, have a happy, healthy and safe holiday season. We will talk to you again next time on 1980s Now. <laughs>